Good morning, everyone. I'm going to invite uh, Natalie to come and uh, bring the reading this morning. Our reading is from Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now in work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace that we have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you were... you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier by dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death his hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thank you, Natalie. We're up to uh, week, week three in, in Ephesians. And so I, I hope that you've got your, your Bibles with you because um, we're just going to walk our way through this, this chapter, chapter two of uh, Ephesians. Uh, the first two weeks of uh, this sermon series, we were looking at uh, 
the, the first part of Ephesians 1, which talked about the wonderful blessings that we have in Christ. Last week, we looked at Paul's prayer and, and, and a great model for, for prayer as well. Today, now, I don't know whether this is by accident or design or just um, out of craziness. I, we decided to, to preach the whole of chapter 2 um, today. And it's, it's only as I started to look through it um, during the week, I thought, have I bitten off more than I can, can chew? And as you've, you've probably heard as it was read today, there, there are so many great concepts of the Christian faith um, contained within Ephesians 2. And as, as, we were, as, as it was being read to you, I'm sure you go, oh, that's familiar, that's familiar, I've heard that before, and so on. So what we're going to be talking about is, is, is things that I'm sure we've heard regularly um, in, in, in church or in your Bible reading or in your growth groups or whatever. And so um, one of the things that I, I, I guess as I was struggling to say, how can I put this into a, a nice, neat sermon? Uh, it, it's probably not going to be the, the typical John Wilson sermon this morning. I'm, I'm basically going to do a, a running commentary through Ephesians 2. Now, I don't know whether this is going to work or not. It's just going to be a, a running commentary. We're just going to pause and look at each one of these concepts. And my prayer is that it will resonate, it will strengthen, and it will encourage you as we look at each part uh, as, as we go along. So um, there it is. This is what we're going to be doing this morning. And I've titled it Alive and Reconciled. And I thought of so many other titles that we could do. We could talk about grace and faith. We could talk about new humanity. We can talk about cornerstone. We can talk about no longer being far, far away. There's so many big and broad um, statements within Ephesians 2. And as I mentioned last week, Ephesians 2, written by Paul whilst he was in prison and written basically not to address a specific issue, but basically a letter of encouragement to not just the, the church at Ephesus, but to the wider churches around the area. So we're going to start, where's a good place to start is verse 1. So let's, let's kick off um, Ephesians 2 verse 1, as it's already been read. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, Ephesians was written to the church. So it was written to followers of Jesus, to Christians. And Paul is saying, you were previously dead. You were previously dead. It reminds me, and we've had, I, I guess, the, the sobering reality of journeying with at least a couple of families within this church who have experienced stillborn babies. And it's, it's an absolute tragedy when you see um, a baby that's been stillborn. The reality of it is that, to a certain extent, all of us have been stillborn. We, we were born physically but spiritually dead. Now, what do we mean by dead? And when, when Paul talks about this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, does that mean he's just talking symbolically? Because as you, as you know, um, for us, we were born physically alive, weren't we? So is it just symbolically? No, I don't think he's talking symbolically here. The fact is that there's many different types of, of life that we have at the same time we all here i'm hoping all of us here have physical life everybody's breathing we've all got physical life there is a sense of of of, of moral life and there is spiritual life and they are uh, 
operating in many respects together, but they can be separate. You can be well and truly physically alive, yet spiritually dead. And we see this, um, once again, it, 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 it's, it's tragic. We've had people that we know who have had brain injuries and they've been physically alive and yet their brain is not functioning and they are basically in a vegetative state. It's, it's, once again, it's a, it's a tragedy, um, but it is possible to be physically alive and yet, as they call, brain dead. So th- this term is not symbolic. We are all and have been at one stage spiritually dead. Now, I don't know whether you can think back to a time previous before, and I'm, sh- I'm, I'm talking here generally to uh, Christians here, uh, to a time when, yes, you could agree, yes, it, it appeared that I was spiritually dead or not awakened to the gospel of Jesus. You can think of that time. And I can also imagine for, for some of us, there's the conversations you may have had with certain people where you've been talking whether it's witnessing or whatever and it just feels like the words that you're explaining as you explain the gospel are just going right over the top of the person who you're talking to do you know what i mean it's almost like i've got no idea what you're talking about have you had that experience and and that is simply because it's not because they're um, um arrogant or, or whatever it could simply be that if they are spiritually dead they are not able to receive those words and and once again we could spend a whole lot of time about you know do people believe before they're born again or do they get born again before they believe and there's that's a whole other topic for another time and everything like that and it's only only through the 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 miracle of the grace of Jesus Christ that somehow that happens that people can come spiritually dead and come to the point of of believing through really the miraculous work of, of of Jesus so can we all see that uh, we have all been and everybody is born physically alive but spiritually dead? That's, that's what Paul is talking about here. He also says that we were, were previously dead in our transgressions and, and sins. Now, sometimes we just throw that all together and go, yep, transgressions and sins, it's just one word that symbolizes both. There's actually two different things. Transgression is different to sin a transgression is basically when you move beyond a boundary it's a bit like you know where it says no trespasses and you decide to trespass into a place you should not go that is a transgression you have transgressed that that boundary which is really comes out of rebellion doesn't it if i'm going to enter a space that i shouldn't go that's rebellion so transgressions really indicates the rebellious nature sin and the best way to explain sin is when an archer is aiming for with his arrow to a target and misses the target that is one of the best ways to explain sin that we we miss the target or or our failure so when we talk about transgressions and sins basically we're saying it is part of our rebellious and our failure to live up to God's standards. And, both, and we've operated in both of those spaces. In rebellion, we've, we've gone places we shouldn't, you know, we're, we're, we've crossed boundaries we shouldn't cross, and we've missed the mark. We've, we've failed miserably. So therefore, we need a saviour. 
Once again, does that, does that make sense? So, if that is the way that Paul opens up chapter 2, he says, you are all in that state. What does this look like? And this is where we move into verses 2 and 3. Let's read verse 2 and 3 again. In which you used to live, which is talking about the transgressions and sins, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature discerning, deserving of wrath. This here is essentially describing a physical life whilst spiritually dead. Once again, what sort of imagery could we have here? It's a bit like... Um, and I know it's a bit of a, a fad uh, in, in Hollywood at the moment. There's zombie movies, you know. There's, there's basically the walking dead. Those who are um, spiritually dead but physically alive and they're just walking around, whatever they do, consuming people and you've got to kill them a second time. And I don't know. I'm not into zombies, but anyway, that it's... And, and what he's basically saying is this is the way you used to live. You used to be physically alive but spiritually dead. But he's saying that is the way you used to live, but that's no longer. The walk of a believer is to be different. Now, sorry to sort of continue the whole imagery of, of dead people. <laughs> Sounds going to sound a bit more, but it's, it's going to change. Trust me, it's going to change. Imagine, maybe you don't want to imagine, imagine a dead person in a coffin. Are they comfortable? Well, does it really matter? They're dead. They're lying in a coffin. That's what you do with dead people. But imagine, imagine if that... This is getting even freakier, isn't it? Imagine if that, if that dead person in the coffin suddenly became alive. Would that person who now becomes alive, would they be comfortable resting in a coffin? No! The first thing they want to do is they want to get out of that coffin because a live body is not designed to live in a, a, a coffin. True? I'm not getting too morbid, am I? No? So this is the imagery that when we become alive in Christ, it's just given that we would step out of that old life, wouldn't we? Which is described in verses 2 and 3, gratifying the, the cravings of the, of the flesh. And yet, one more image. I think there's some believers who are like vampires. <laughs> Have I taken this too far? You know, we... You want to see what... <laughs> um, we spend a lot of our time in, in the coffin gratifying the, the, the cravings of the old flesh, but then we realise we've got to live a, a different life. And so we're in and out, in and out, like, like vampires. Now, it's just... It's, it's silly, isn't it? But this is what Paul's talking about. You who were once spiritually dead have now come to life in Christ. And so it's only given if you come to life in Christ that there will be a new way of living, wouldn't there? That we're not going to gratify the cravings of the flesh. So think about it. It, it just doesn't work in and out living the previous life. And so it says here that initially we were people deserving of wrath and judgment. And so 
when I asked the question to say, so what were we saved? We were saved to live this new life, being made spiritually alive. What were we saved from? And some people go, well, we were saved from Satan. And it alludes to that in verses 2 and 3, the, the, the kingdom of the world. And so we were saved from Satan. Some people will say, well, we're also saved from the flesh. Once we, we just lived for, for the way we wanted to live, now we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Jesus. So both of those are correct. We're saved from Satan. We're saved from the flesh. But you know what it also says here is we're actually saved from God himself. Now you're going, what? Saved from God? Well, God is a holy God. And he can't have anything to do with anything that's not holy. And so if, if we're spiritually dead, we're not holy. God's wrath is upon those who are spiritually dead. Doesn't it say that in verse 2 and 3? So in essence, when we're saved, we're actually saved from God's wrath. Does that, does that make sense? So we're saved from Satan, saved from that flesh, but ultimately we're saved from the wrath of God, from God himself. Verses 1 through to 3. It's all about death and the previous way of life. Verse 4 starts with what word? But. I always like it when it changes pace here and Paul is shifting and goes, well, that's the way it was, but. And whenever you think that there's a but, you think the words after that become pretty important. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Who did something about our spiritual condition? Who? Jesus Christ did himself, full of great love and rich in mercy. Love and mercy. Now, that's really, really important to know. But do you know what else? There's probably... A lot of people who have got love and, and mercy and could be quite rich and, I don't know, let's, let's imagine someone like Bill Gates. It's probably not a good example, but anyway, there it is. He's very rich. At one stage, he was the world's richest man. So he's rich and has got a lot of riches that he can give. And um, there was a time when he was trying to eradicate malaria in Africa. And so obviously, he had a, a certain level of love. Um, for, for people and wanting to help in some ways, however that worked. So you could say that there's certain people who have got love and, and mercy, but if it's not directed to us, it doesn't make any difference to us, does it? So Bill Gates, hmm, whatever. One of the things about this is you find out that it says that, that God is, is, is great in love and rich in mercy for us for us it's it's directed to us and that makes all the difference doesn't it we're not talking about some god that's just sitting up there somewhere and he's full of love and mercy but he, he he's directing it all to the angels or, or whatever it would make no difference to us so here's the big but in verse 4 it says you know great in love and rich in mercy directed towards us good news good news verse 5 title this when did god start loving you he made us alive with christ even when we were dead in transgressions it is by grace 
you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparably great riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So, when did God start loving us? It's like when, when we repented, he goes, oh, okay, finally the, I can love the unlovable when you've repented. Is that, what, is that what it says? No. When did God start loving us? When we were dead. Now, think about, think about that. Spiritually dead people according to God, not holy, they're, to a certain extent, unlovable, aren't they? Depends on how you look at it. I know that's what you're thinking. But do you understand what I'm saying? Even when we were spiritually dead, he still loved us. He didn't wait until we were lovable in order to make us alive, even in our dead state. And the thing that I find fascinating right here is it's, it's not just, oh, well, I'm feeling sorry for these people, um, I, I, I'm going to extend my mercy just so that you can escape the judgment, the wrath of God. It's not just that. He says, but I'm going to seat you in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Our destination is not just to escape the wrath of God, but it's actually positioned in this one of the most blessed positions in the whole of the universe. And he continues to show his gift into the future it says here to show incomparably riches of his grace in an ongoing way how vast is God's grace well his grace was vast enough to be able to um, make you spiritually alive but that in itself is like taking a cup out of the Pacific Ocean do you know what I mean it's it's incomparably vast and great and it's not like he just sits back and waits for us to finally come to our senses he's continuing to pursue us and this is this whole thing about you know for people who are spiritually dead he keeps working in and through and away in order to to seek to uh, encourage us to respond to his incredible gift I don't know about you but if, if I had a, a precious gift and I offered it to a friend and they said, no, thank you, what would you do? Would you ask again? Maybe you might ask again. You might say, look, I don't know whether you heard me correctly. I'm, I'm, you don't have to pay me for it. This, this is a gift and it's, it's valuable and I want you to have it. And they turn around a second time and they go, no, I heard you clearly. I don't need that gift. Would you ask again? Or again? Or again? You'd probably give up, wouldn't you? You'd probably go, well, that's, that's their loss. What we see here is that, that God almost begs. He continues to pursue us, even though, and I don't know about your story, and, but there's for many of we've we've had this journey where we've, contemplated and then refused we've we've moved forward towards God and then stepped back and then we've sort of said this sounds too good to be true but no I want to be in control of my own life and there's people who have have made multiple refusals of the gift that God has offered 
Does he say, too bad, find somebody else? No. Out of his great love and the richness of his mercy, he perseveres. Do you, do you find that encouraging? It's not a God who just asks once or twice. He continues. When so often we would give up. Now, moves from there into verse 8. This is, like I sort of said, this Ephesians chapter 2. It's, it's huge news. Verse 8 to 10, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You've heard that passage before? Multiple times. It, it is one of the, the, the big statements of the Christian faith that we read in a couple of different areas. But here's one of the key things that we probably need to establish here. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace. And that's, that's a key thing through this because if you look at these, these words here, um, he doesn't say saved by faith, does he? We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. But it is through faith that we do it. Now, I think one of the best ways to try to illustrate this is Imagine you are dying of thirst, right? You are just about ready to, to pass out. You are so thirsty. And you find a, a hose with water in it. And from the hose, you drink from that water and your thirst is quenched and your life is saved. Now, what saved your life? Was it the hose the hose was involved in the process that contained the, 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 the water, but ultimately what saved your life is the water. True? It so happened to be channeled through a hose. Does that make sense? It's got an important part to play, but it is not the saving faith. It is the saving grace through, conjured through faith. Now, that's an important thing because so often, and I, I hear this, and you probably do food from time to time, is, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to live by faith. Well, faith in what? Well, I don't know, but I'll just have, I'll just have faith, you know? Maybe something different every day, but I'm just going to have faith that everything will work out. I'm just going to have faith that, you know, this will get me by and everything. Now, faith is an important thing, but faith has got to be directed somewhere. It's, it's, it's actually got to carry something with it does that make sense and so probably the best illustration that i can come up with is is we need the saving grace the water of jesus christ and and through faith as as small and as limited as it can be that is how we get saved except that by faith and i think too many people have this empty hose like i've got this faith I don't know what's in the, in the hose, but anyway, I'll just have faith. I'll just have faith that something good will happen today. Does that make sense? Faith is important, but it's actually got to carry something, and that is the water or the grace of Jesus Christ. 
And of course, as we read here, it's the grace, which is unmerited favour, which is not our own works. And, and Paul makes this quite clear. The danger is that if it is by our works that we get saved, of course, it's going to be pretty obvious that we're going to boast about how good our works are. And other letters that Paul wrote, he kind of illustrates what the value of our works are compared to the grace of Jesus Christ. There's no comparison. This saving work belongs to Christ and Christ alone. And once again, it is not just to escape hell. It is not just so that we can escape the wrath of God. One of the things I find incredibly beautiful about this he doesn't just save us, but he also positions us. And we've, we've talked about this passage, and only just recently we talked about this, this passage, Ephesians 2.10. He's, he saved us in order to make something beautiful out of us. Now, use the word um, handiwork. Sometimes you can translate it into a masterpiece. He's sculpturing us. He's, he's transforming us into new creation spiritually alive that we might do good works for him those good works don't save us they are a result of our salvation they are a result of what god has done in us so all of those good works will ultimately point to the glory of god so he's saying here that we are a work of art god is continuing to work in us is that you are you a work of art pause for effect um, some of us struggle with it because we go I don't think I'm good enough to be a work of art exactly because it's got nothing at all to do with us once again, how are we saved? We're saved by what? The grace of Jesus Christ. It's his work. So we can say, yes, I am a work of art because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what it says? So we can say to ourselves, yes, I am a work of art. I am his masterpiece. All of the work's been done by him. A piece of stone being sculptured into a statue doesn't have to do much, does it? All of the work is being done by the, the master, the sculpture. You know, there's some people who say, God loves me just as I am. You know, and you have certain people that push an agenda and go, yeah, well, God loves me just as I am. Now, is that true? Uh, yep. But it's, it's not the end of that statement, really, isn't it? God certainly loves me, and we, we read about that in a day. God loved us we're lovable even though we're not lovable he still loves us but it says here that it's not enough for him just to say I'm, I'm just going to love you and leave you as you are and you can remain as you are he's saying I, I, I love you and I've, I've called you because I want to transform you into this new person that I am creating preparing you for heaven and for good works here on earth so yes, it is absolutely true that Jesus loves us just the way we are, but he loves us enough not to remain us in that same position, but to carry us into a, a new work, this work of art. 
and he will transform us. Now, that's the end of verse 10. Now, once we get to the end of verse 10, it seems that there's this big thing about being from dead to alive, um, grace through faith, all of the, the, the big statements. And he moves into this second part, which I've called the reconciliation part. From verses 1 to 10, the individual, through from 11 onwards to community. Let's have a look. Verse 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Now, what we want to say is that verses 1 to 10 we talk about as individuals we're reconciled with God through the grace of Jesus Christ and 11 to 22 he's really sort of talking about how that individual work then works out within community for us to be reconciled to each other now of course you're probably all aware that in 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 Paul's day there was these huge issues there was the Jews and then there were the Gentiles and never the two should mix and there was always this big battle and to a large extent the Gentiles had no hope, no hope of this great love and this rich mercy of the God of Israel. And yet here it is here that Paul breaks down this barrier. And we, continue, we, we pick this up in verse 13, where he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away... Now when he talks about far away, he doesn't talk about a physical distance. He doesn't talk about people who live many kilometres away. He talked about those who were not uh, Jewish, but those who were Gentile. They've been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the good news. The good news is that the, the blood of Jesus Christ is available to every single person. And for those who used to be far, far away are now able to be brought into the family by the sacrifice of Christ. Good, good news. Good news. Verses 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in the flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Where do we find this peace? It doesn't say that Jesus brings us some peace. It's saying that Jesus is in fact the peace, isn't it? He is the peace. There's no dividing wall. Now, think for a moment, Jesus hanging on the cross. He would have looked out and he would have seen the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have been mocking him. We finally got him, the king of the Jews. And the Sadducees, they would have thought that they'd, you know, finally had their day. He would have seen the, the Romans and the, the, the Gentiles, particularly for the Romans, they'd be showing their strength and sort of saying, don't, don't mess with the Romans. He would have seen the Jews, Jewish sinners, Gentile sinners. Jesus crucified in front of all of these people. 
but think about this where was Paul when he wrote this letter he was in prison in Rome and from what we understand he was awaiting the trial because he was falsely accused by Jews for bringing a Gentile into the temple that was one of the accusations he made against was made against him essentially bringing a Gentile past the wall of separation now I think there's a there's a key thing in all of this and it was one of the big contentious issues of those days is if we're going to accept this is from a Jewish perspective if we're going to accept Gentiles in there there's this whole issue of circumcision and all that because essentially what we're doing is we're we're making Gentiles into Jews but Paul goes, no. No, it's not about transferring this identity from Gentile into Jew. But he talks about here, and in verse 15, uh, just one back one, yep, verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Now, I, I think um, there's, a, there's a hotbed of of, of angst in our, our community at the moment as, we're, as, as, as Paul's already talked about and prayed about as we, we're looking at this um, vote next week and, and it's not just here in Australia but all around the world there just seems to be this whole concern about essentially identity. Are you Russian or you're Ukrainian? You know, are you um, Israeli or, or Palestine? Are you are you are you Aussie or are you not Aussie? Are you white? Are you black? Are you are you Asian? Are you whatever? And it just seems that we're obsessed with identity, aren't we? And we create all of these dividing walls. And 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 our concern is that yeah, the more that we focus on these particular aspects, we see to see how different we are, and then that just creates these these walls which are not good. And yet, for people who are in Christ, we have this incredible good news that we're not saying, we, we want you to be a white Aussie middle-aged man. I, I'm not asking people to do that. We're talking about this, this new humanity, the, the body of Christ. And, and, and Paul's touched on that as he spent time down in Sydney we're finding that the body of Christ is full of all different nations all different people different walks of life and and this in some ways is is waving the great flag of the reconciliation that Christ brings doesn't it I think we've got to be very careful that we don't weigh into this argument regarding our identity because our identity, ultimately as followers of Jesus, is tied up into that which is of Christ. Does that make sense? And the more that we can, we can, we can focus on that and less about you know, how different I am to my neighbour or other people or people who vote different than me and whatever, I think this is what Paul is referring to, to a large extent. Our identity is in Christ. Not being Jew, not being Gentile, not being white, not being black, not being whatever. And we, we continue on in verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. 
the far, far away Gentiles, the Jews who were near, there's really no difference now. And we're all one. Moving to verse 19. Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You know, the the privileges that we have to be said that you are part of a household, you're not just a visitor. You know the difference between when you invite someone to your place and they're a visitor? You know, there's certain restrictions. You don't let them open the fridge and well some people you might you come in you can do whatever you want to do but but if you're a visitor you know you're treated like a visitor but you're a member of the household you have all of the privileges don't you this is your place you're you're just as much a part of the family as anybody else welcome as part of the household not just a visitor and this is what paul is saying to gentiles but also to jews you're part of this one family No person is closer than the other. We're all equal in the measure of grace. Now, how would that that sound to a Gentile, do you think? It's good news, isn't it? You're no longer held at a distance and you, you you can't do this and you can't do that. You are welcome in. You are welcome in. Do do you sometimes feel like a a second-class citizen? Sometimes that you don't belong? Where do I fit? What's my identity? This has got to be some of the the best news that you've heard all week, wouldn't it? You're welcome. Just by faith, accepting the grace of Jesus Christ, you're part of his household, his, his family. And it doesn't matter whether you're rich and educated and you've got all the resources. That doesn't make you better than anybody else, according to to this statement. Or it doesn't matter whether you're poor and uneducated. Doesn't mean that you're, you know, you haven't got the same privileges. We're all in the same boat. Doesn't matter what our background, our nationality, our educational status, the finances in the bank account, or whatever. Doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And we come to the final three verses of this incredible chapter. Paul continues, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which the God lives by his spirit. One family. Being built into a great building We are part of that building, a living building. We're like the stones. We're like part of the whole building being built. The good news is we're on the same foundation, starting with Jesus. And he talks about through the apostles and prophets where all of these things were laid out, Jesus becomes our chief cornerstone. Now, anybody who's into building will know that the most important part of the building is the foundation. If you don't get the foundation set correctly, everything else has got a question mark over it. You can put a question mark about its stability, about its, its strength or whatever. Once that, that cornerstone, all of the measurements are taken from that cornerstone, the foundation set and the like. Set all of the measurements and it determines its stability. And this building is not just haphazard stones, beautifully constructed by the ultimate architect, which is God. 
And the thing I like about this, it doesn't just say that this is just going to be a monument to God. It's not like a museum where we just look and go, this is where God once stood. No, what is it? It's a dwelling place. This is where we we live. Now, try not to think about these four walls that you can see here together, but see for us as God's people being positioned in such a way that we are a living temple. We are a living building which houses the Spirit of God in which He works and is glorified. That's us. But you know what? I, I find it incredible that He has chosen essentially what were once dead, unlovable sinners. And He says, I want you to be a part of my masterpiece. Now, that's, that's mercy and that's love, isn't it? That's you and that's me. Once dead, essentially unlovable, but loved by God. And all we need to do is allow him to build into us a dwelling, a place where his spirit can have its way. Ephesians 2. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's powerful. Life-giving. Glorious to God. Can we, can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. And in particular, as we've been focusing on Ephesians 2, we thank you that though we were born spiritually dead, we had nothing to offer. We were essentially unlovable sinners. And yet, even when we were in that state, you, you loved us with a great love and with the, the rich mercy that is you. You've brought us to life simply because we placed faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Heavenly Father. Please uh, don't allow us to rely on our own works, our own abilities, our own strength. But in all of this, allow us just to surrender to your will, that you would build in us what you desire together as one new humanity glorifying God that through this new dwelling where your spirit resides we can bring glory to you and you will continue to have your way in us as you build us into the masterpiece that you have designed for each one of us both individually and collectively and I pray that you'll continue to add new stones, new living stones into this building. Stone by stone by stone, people saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. May this passage continue to speak to us as we go from this building today. Resonate with us, encourage us, strengthen us and challenge us as we go forward this week. And we pray all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.